Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 52, The Rising Sun. During the time building up to the Second World War, Japan was a geopolitical anomaly that the Western powers never quite seemed capable of fully grappling with. Part of that was their underestimation of Japan's capabilities, and also because East Asia never commanded the same attention as European affairs. Among their Asian neighbors, Japan was unique. It had mostly closed its borders through the early modern period, much like many others around it, and it too had been forcibly opened back up by Westerners seeking fresh markets. For a time in the 1800s, it appeared as if Japan would suffer the same fate as the rest of Asia, and either become a colony, or like China, have its internal affairs dictated to by foreigners. But in the end, neither happened. In fact, Japan defied all historical trends that adapted to the changing times, and rose to become a great power in its own right. Which, for the purposes of telling a global story, is really convenient, as the misadventures of the Japanese are really what gets us to turn away from Europe. In World War II, there are two primary centers of conflict, Europe and East Asia slash Western Pacific. Despite being called a world war, the first one was primarily European, and it was Japan's rise that made the second a really global one. Even though they were clearly the bad guys, what with the massacres and brutality and uh, vicious sneak attacks, they did do enough damage to the colonial empires that, post-war, they never recovered. Which was impressive given how dominant those empires had been for the past century. So, let's get up to speed on Glorious Nippon and just how they got to be so influential. And unlike the Europeans, we're going to touch on a more distant past to get them going. So just a heads up, this series is going to really get going in a much earlier time frame than the standard post-World War I period I've been using so far. The reason is because that war was much less a cataclysm for Japan, and as such, their decision-making in the 20s and 30s was more a direct continuation of what had been developing for generations already. As I mentioned a moment ago, Japan spent much of the early modern era isolated from the rest of the world. That state of affairs came into being during the 1500s and when Japan first made contact with the West. Before that, for most of the European Middle Ages, Japan was ruled by an emperor based out of the city of Kyoto. It was your standard feudal empire, nothing terribly remarkable about it. Except the figure of the emperor became something of a cultural and spiritual fixation for the Japanese. He wasn't just a ruler, he was something much closer to the divine. Not in the favored-by-God manner found in Western monarchs, but rather the emperor was of the divine. They would often be described as gods, though the Western conception of that term might be a little strong compared to how it functioned in Japan. They didn't exhibit special physical abilities like the gods and demigods from mythology. Uh, nevertheless, the emperors were not figures to be trifled with lightly, as they carried out ceremonial duties considered vital to the spiritual well-being of the nation, and acted as conduits to the divine. As such, they were considered sacred, and, well, you couldn't challenge them directly. That being said, all that didn't prohibit the powerful nobles, known as the daimyo, from acting independently against each other. The Japanese empire was not as strong or cohesive as its much larger and older Chinese counterpart, and over time the emperors became increasingly isolated in Kyoto, as the daimyo feuded and warred with each other. The conflicts may have gone against the various emperor's wishes, but if the daimyo mutually ignored the emperor, there wasn't a whole lot he could do about it. 
That's simplifying things, as it took generations for this instability to really set in. But it eventually did, and the emperor barely clung to authority in the city of Kyoto itself. An impoverished emperor there held court with equally impoverished nobles who had lost their lands outside the capital. In the face of their own decline, the emperors were forced to turn to the expedient of appointing shoguns in order to hold the nation together. The title of shogun derived from appointed commanders of temporary military campaigns previously ordered by the emperor. Starting in the 1100s, the position became much more permanent and hereditary. The typical shogun was expected to rein in the disparate nobles who blanketed Japan with their fiefdoms. This was usually too much to ask, though, of the average shogun, and that office, too, became the target of intrigues and wars. In fact, it might have made conflicts worse, as while the divinity of the emperor prevented overt aggression against him, nothing of the sort protected the shogun. So, you had an idolized but ceremonial emperor providing consent to govern to the shogunate, and not really impacting events otherwise. The shogun were, for all purposes, the political rulers, but their standing was a granted one that could be taken from them if they showed weakness. And in the late Middle Ages, that's exactly what happened. The whole system came crashing down in the late 1400s amidst almost 150 years of civil war between daimyos. That was until a man named Toyotomi Hideyoshi rose to power. Born into a modest background, he rose to power in Osaka, and over the course of decades, in the late 1500s, he brought most of Japan under his control. While he was not granted the title shogun by the emperor, he was afforded most every other title and, for all intents and purposes, managed to rule a united Japan, albeit only after rooting out and destroying everyone who dared oppose him. And that included religious figures as well. Japan had a long tradition with both its native Shinto practices as well as its take on Buddhism. Both were brought under the emerging state's heel. Then there were the Christians. On one hand, the Westerners brought trade goods, which included guns, which for Toyotomi was great. But they also brought evangelical priests, which for him was very bad. Having people spiritually report to Rome, a city on the other side of the planet, uh, wouldn't do at all. He began suppressing the emerging religion a process which would escalate after his death. Toyotomi would die without a viable heir in 1598, opening the way for Takugawa Yasu to seize power. Takugawa was a contemporary of Toyotomi, both serving the same feudal master in their early days, and Takugawa deferred to him when it came time to decide who would rule. And while Toyotomi made his power base in Osaka, Takugawa made his home in the city of Edo, which you might know by another name today, Tokyo. In 1603, he was granted the title of shogun from the emperor, and transferred the state apparatus that Toyotomi had created to Edo. While he personally wouldn't last terribly long, he was already 60 at the time of his elevation, his dynasty would endure for centuries, and for a long time it was actually quite effective. Japan enjoyed a period of internal peace that it hadn't known for ages. The nation prospered, and the military class of samurai was engaged in keeping the peace not fighting in civil wars. Part of that stability, though, came from turning away from the rest of the world. Japan became a largely closed nation. The So family, ruling over the small island of Tsushima, were allowed to maintain contacts with Korea, and their island became a very profitable entrepot as trade with the mainland was routed through there. There was also the Dutch trading outpost in Nagasaki, which provided the only remaining official outlet to the west. 
Starting in the mid-1600s, trade was restricted, but in the early 1700s it had loosened to the point where Western literature could be sold. There was an ensuing rush to secure this so-called Dutch learning among Japan's intelligentsia. This gradual opening did not apply to the rest of the archipelago, though, and the vast majority of Japanese lived their days largely unaware of the greater world outside their homeland. The world, though, did not sit still on their account. The long march of empire and profit took a very long time to finally reach Japan, on account of its geographical isolation, but it eventually did. The Takagawa shoguns attempted to assert themselves and ordered the executions of any western sailors who wound up on Japan's shores. Even such brutal tactics couldn't stave off the future, though. In 1806 and 1807, Russian ships, having been denied access to Nagasaki's ports for trade, started attacking Japanese villages on Sakhalin Island and the southern Kuril Islands. Lacking modern ships, the shogunate could do nothing to repel the foreign attacks on their most distant of outposts. It also kind of set the tone of Russo-Japanese relations. In 1808, the Japanese were momentarily roped into the Napoleonic Wars as a British frigate entered Nagasaki's harbor looking for Dutch ships. A local official demanded the British leave, to which the young captain threatened to turn the ship's guns on the city if they didn't supply provisions. Seeing that they had no way to resist their modern weapons, the official complied, and then later committed ritual suicide over the humiliation. So yeah, things weren't going well on the self-isolation front. These events opened the eyes of Japanese officials, and they began taking note of the expansion of the European interlopers. The most telling incident for them was the First Opium War, which saw Great Britain demolish the armies of the much larger Qing Empire over in China. The scale of that disaster for the heretofore unassailable Chinese made the shogunate and Edo realize just how much trouble they were in. But even the scale of the threats bearing down on them did not shake the shogunate from its inherent conservatism. The King of Holland in 1844 delivered a direct communication warning of the impending dangers, and offering his country's assistance in modernizing Japan in exchange for a favored trading position. The shogun declined this offer. Ultimately, it was not the Europeans, but the Americans, that were the first to force their way into Japan, creating a relationship between the two that would grow ever more complicated as the decades wore on. Commodore Matthew Perry of the U.S. Navy arrived in Edo Bay on July 8, 1853, with a flotilla of four warships. His purpose was to open normalized diplomatic and commercial relations with Japan, and he delivered these wishes to the Japanese government with the promise that he would return at a later time to receive their response. Seeing no way to fight off the U.S. without modern weapons, the Japanese agreed to most of the American terms when Perry returned in February 1854. A couple of Japanese ports would be opened to American ships for the purpose of provisioning, and an American representative would take up residence in Japan. Trade was not initially agreed to, but for the moment the U.S. was satisfied. But now the first crack in the armor had been made, and the Europeans were not far behind and demanded their own treaties to match the Americans. On top of that, the American consul sent as a representative, a man named Townsend Harris, started making active demands that Japan open themselves to trade, threatening that the matter could be done peacefully or through a naval bombardment. Japan was now also entering a period of increasing internal instability. Conservatives thought that caving into the Americans would be a disaster and that they were going to fall under foreign domination. 
while those who supported modernization realized that the shogunate was incapable of safeguarding the nation's interests against the West, and lacked the ability to reform the country while keeping the foreigners at bay. Officials, though, pressed forward with plans to continue opening the nation, and in 1858 made treaties with first the U.S., and then later the Europeans to open ports for trade across Japan. The shogunate government had attempted to secure the blessing of their actions with the emperor in Kyoto, which they thought was a foregone conclusion. The emperors still had no effective power at that time, and continued to play their simple ceremonial role. But the imperial court in Kyoto saw that the shogunate's support was crumbling across the nation, that they were losing their grip on power. The emperor advised that he could not support the treaties, as they were not to the benefit of Japan. The Edo government therefore found themselves lacking divine sanction moving forward. The government responded to the growing unrest by instituting a crackdown. Critics of engaging with the foreigners were purged from government posts, and unreliable daimyo were arrested. This, like so many other crackdowns in history, merely enraged more of the population against the government. And while the officials of the shogunate lifted the crackdown after a short time, the damage was done, and resistance started to coalesce around the emperor. A key component of this developing movement was its anti-Western stance. In 1862 and 63, there began to be incidents of violence against foreigners. A group of English staying near Yokohama were attacked with one killed after they stumbled across a funeral procession and managed to antagonize the crowd with their insensitivity. Elsewhere, shore guns were taken over and used to fire on foreign vessels. These were relatively small incidents, but they provoked violent responses from the Westerners. Ships were sent in, coastal cities were bombarded and looted, and in some cases, they were even occupied by Western troops. The shogunate moved quickly to crush this dissent. Seeing as how they couldn't stand against the West, they had to restore relations with them if they hoped to survive. The most active parts of the movement to resist foreign influence were hunted down and eliminated, which for a time convinced the government that the situation could be salvaged and they could bring the country back together. Unfortunately for them, the initial success in reasserting authority was largely temporary. The effects of opening up to foreign trade by the mid-1860s started to be felt. Once they had gotten access to Japanese markets, Europeans immediately began demanding huge quantities of Japanese silks and tea, which, if you produced such items, was fantastic, as prices for those goods soared. If you were a consumer of such products, though, it was terrible, as all of a sudden, producers made more money selling abroad than domestically, cutting off much of the supply to actual Japanese. These products were agricultural, also had the unforeseen consequence of encouraging other farmers to switch over to those products. They started raising silkworms and growing tea instead of, you know, growing food. So it wasn't just a consumer goods shortage, the entire food supply became more restricted, setting prices for the basics soaring, with the cost of rice rising 700% from 1863 to 1867, a mere four years. The shogunate refused to back down from their policies, though. With prices getting out of control, they also started debasing the coinage, which only sent inflation soaring even more. And in an effort to modernize, they took out loans from the West to help build an advanced army and a more centralized bureaucracy. Taxes were raised, and the signals coming from Edo indicated that the government was going to be bringing the daimyos under closer supervision. All this finally set off armed resistance. Rebellions started breaking out in the southwest of the country, and by January 3rd, 1868, anti-shogun troops entered Kyoto, where they were welcomed by the emperor. 
and it was in fact a brand new emperor, only 15 years old, that was there to receive them. This was the Emperor Meiji, the towering figure of post-shogunate Japan. The emperor announced that he was calling back in the power of government that had been bestowed on the Takagawa shogunate, and that he was resuming the prerogative of the imperial throne to rule the country. Just as a note on the naming conventions of the Japanese emperors real quick, they have their personal name and a name used after their deaths that also doubled as an era name. For example, his name was actually Mutoshido, but he was referred to simply as the emperor in life. After he died, he was referred to in retrospect as Meiji, and the period of his reign was the Meiji era. His grandson Hirohito, whom we will cover in a lot more detail, was known internationally by his personal name at the time, which is why I'll be referring to him that way, as that's the name he's most known for and how it's recorded in the history books, despite it being more accurate among Japanese to refer to him as the Emperor Showa. Anyway, the anti-shogunate troops merged in Kyoto under the leadership of one Saigo Takamori. Saigo was a big, stocky samurai who had the force of personality and the needed power base to keep the various groups uniting under the imperial banner together. The resulting civil war was quick and very one-sided. For all their attempts at rebuilding their power, it was all too little too late, and the shogun's armies were routed by the highly motivated royalists. By May 1869, the fighting was over, the shogunate was gone, and the Meiji Restoration, as it came to be known, was getting underway. Now, just what this restoration of imperial power was supposed to look like was anybody's guess. The last time the emperors held sway in Japan was centuries ago, so there was little precedent for what was to come. Meiji and his court were going to have to face every conceivable problem. An unruly nobility, an economy in shambles, a government needing to be rebuilt, and conniving foreign powers dead set on exploiting Japan in every way possible. The first order of business was settling the emperor in what became the official capital. Meiji decamped from ancient Kyoto and established himself alongside the forming government in the shogunate capital of Edo, which was then renamed Tokyo. The government that formed there was composed of the leading men of the Meiji Restoration, who would be retroactively be referred to as the Genro, or alternately as the oligarchs. They assumed control of ministries and governed as a kind of alliance of factions the two main ones being based on geographical areas of Japan, namely the Satsuma and Choshu factions. While the emperor made a proclamation of general principles, there was no constitution and no political parties at this time. Instead, the Genro governed as a group with the emperor as a kind of adjudicator. And once established, the loyalists around the emperor found it imperative to create a modern, centralized state without provoking a civil war with the country's noble daimyos and their samurai troops. This was a course of action that was fraught with danger, as the shogunate had attempted to do the exact same thing and had provoked the rebellion that had just toppled it. Luckily, the new imperial leaders had a number of advantages. Firstly, the fact that they had a large army already marching throughout the country. Second, that they hadn't been discredited by years of humiliation at the hands of foreigners. And lastly, they had the legitimacy of the emperor backing them. That last bit was especially important, as strictly speaking all the daimyos held their domains by the leave of the emperor. He assigned them their noble status and lands to support themselves. Starting in early 1869 and concluding around the middle of the year, those assignments were voluntarily returned by the daimyos or recalled by the emperor directly, 
They were allowed to stay on as governors on behalf of the emperor, but the feudal nature of the relationship was largely eliminated as the new government moved towards a system of prefectures that reported directly to Tokyo. In mid-1871, this reform was implemented and the old daimyo system was definitively done away with. This was an astonishing turnaround, as in the span of a mere three years, a system of rule that had existed for almost a millennium was eliminated. Two big reasons the nobles went along with the plan were, as I mentioned, there was the imperial army standing right there, and also the government offered stipends to the daimyo and samurai that were losing their positions. It was the fate of the samurai that was going to cause trouble down the road, though. Famously, they were the warrior class of Japan and were the backbone of that nation's armies. Their status and history caused some debate about how they would be utilized in the future, but modernizers who called for a conscript army drawn from the entire population won out, and the samurai were suddenly no longer the true soldiers of the nation. This wasn't immediately devastating as they did get those nice stipends by the government, but their numbers made it apparent that they would become an economic burden. Within just two years of making the stipend plan, the government changed course and started pushing the samurai to accept government bonds instead of direct payments, a plan made mandatory for the entire class by 1876. This spread the cost around for the government, and after taking inflation into account, meant they were paying a little less as time went on. The samurai were not terribly happy about the arrangement, but had little means of redress. Insult was added to injury in 1876 when the government prohibited them from carrying their signature swords in public. This all understandably created some tension between the government and the more traditionally-minded segments of Japanese society. Ultimately, it would be the emperor's greatest champion during the 1868 revolution that became the center of these misgivings towards the restoration movement. Saigo Takamori, the great samurai general, joined with a pro-war faction in the imperial court in 1873 and recommended that the samurai class be put to use namely in an invasion of Korea. Since the Restoration, the prohibition on diplomatic relations had been abandoned, and the government wished to be formally recognized by their neighbor. However, the Koreans got hung up on the technicalities of the Japanese sovereign. They recognized the Chinese emperor as the sole divine authority in the world, and could not recognize the Emperor Meiji as having a similar position. This irked some Japanese leaders, who themselves derived their legitimacy from Meiji's high status. This wasn't a majority of Japanese leaders, mind you, and the idea of invasion was not popular among the elites. However, Saigo had grown deeply concerned that the samurai were destined for extinction if drastic measures weren't taken, and figured a foreign adventure was win-win for everybody. The government could keep on modernizing without the bother of the samurai, while the warriors themselves could live out their purpose abroad on behalf of the nation. This may come as a surprise to some of you given Japan's history of military adventurism between the Restoration and 1945, but there was little stomach for war, and the peace faction won out, with the emperor himself shutting down talk of a foreign war. The main interest of the government was to expand the nation's economic might so that it had the resources to defend itself from the West. After that, they could talk about expansion. This incident caused Saigo to resign from his position in the government and take his supporters with him which unfortunately only further isolated him, as this meant the centralizing faction just got even more power in the government, which was also partly why the government moved so fast to strip the samurai their stipends. Saigo returned to his home province and set to work using his financial resources to build academies dedicated to the dispossessed samurai class. 
These academies were military in nature, attracted thousands of bitter young samurai. Once there, they were trained in modern warfare and instructed in Saigo's philosophies on government and life. What his long-term plan actually was in operating these schools, I'm not totally sure, but he was obviously begging for trouble. Which found him in 1876, as the student body increasingly called for armed resistance to the government they had grown to despise. The government, for its part, was not blind to the danger, and dispatched agents to keep an eye on the activities of these schools. The capture of one of these agents in late 1876 provoked the student body to seize a munitions depot that was in the area and begin arming themselves. While Saigo does not appear to have been behind this little incident, he did correctly recognize it as a point of no return. The government already didn't trust him, and they would absolutely see this move as a deliberate provocation on his part. So, he took the initiative, and rallied first the students, then as many additional soldiers as he could get his hands on. On February 15, 1877, he set out with an army some 30,000 strong on a quest to restore the venerable samurai to their place of prestige in Japan. If you're thinking this sounds like the movie The Last Samurai, eh, yeah, that was kind of based on this. No Tom Cruise, though. The Satsuma Rebellion, as it became known, didn't go well. A week into the uprising, the army reached a castle garrisoned by government troops and hit a literal wall. The castle was predicted by the modern conscripts that the government had opted for over the samurai. Among them were peasants, mere commoners, but they held out against the numerically superior samurai. In mid-March, a regular army of 60,000 government troops relieved the garrison and beat back Saigo's army. As it turned out, Saigo stopping the march of his army at the castle was a massive error, as it was his troops that lacked for supplies and needed the government to capitulate to them quickly. If Saigo had kept marching towards Tokyo, he could have picked up more sympathizers on the way and forced the government to act before it was ready. Instead, he remained in place for months and allowed an overwhelming force to bear down on him. The rebel army would retreat back to Saigo's home turf, and the last remnants would hunker down in his castle, where in September the regular army set up for a final assault. The commander of the army asked for Saigo's surrender, but when he received no reply, the castle was stormed. Saigo died in the fighting, and the rebels were crushed. It was the last stand of an old order, and importantly removed many of those willing to oppose Meiji's modernization campaign from the picture. The victorious Genro would then turn to the work of catching up to the West, which will be where we pick up next week. See you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.